All right, so um, so tonight I want to start out with um, with three images, and uh, these images will be intense, and for some of you maybe even invoke um, some memories, but but I want you to hear them and process through them with me. Uh, so you're on vacation, um, the long-awaited vacation in Florida, and uh, you're out. Swimming in the ocean, even though uh, there's a tremendous fear in you uh, about sharks, you're, you're out there anyway, and you're enjoying it, and you're getting salt water in your mouth, and you've lathered on the sunscreen, I mean, you're just, you're just enjoying the water, and all of a sudden, like, quicker than you can even process it, you had gotten out a little bit too far, and this massive undertow grabs you. And before too long, you can feel your heart beating out of your chest because you realize that, that you, you're so discombobulated that you, like, you don't know where, where is up and where is down. Uh, you, you feel yourself hit the ground like you're starting already to process like is this the end. You, you can feel your breath being taken away. So in that moment, would you rather completely all of a sudden come out of the water on your own accord. The waves subside, you, you bounce back up. Or, if you were to be honest, would you rather all of a sudden a, a scuba diver who was out there or a family member who saw it all, like, wrap their arms around you and pull you out of the water to safety? Which, which of those two scenarios would you rather have? You're sleeping one night. Sound asleep. I mean, you're in REM sleep times whatever. I don't even know what that is, but you're, you're sleeping. And uh, you're, you're woken up suddenly, and you, you smell a very strong sense of smoke. And you start getting by your door, and you can feel the heat coming from the hallway. You, you go to put your hand on the doorknob, and it is blazing hot. And so with your elbow, you pop the door out and you look down the hallway and the whole hallway is inflamed. And so in an instant fear and adrenaline that overcomes you, you turn around and you look at the window. One window from the top story of the house. In that moment, would you rather pop that window open on your own accord see the opportunity to, to jump out and, and hope and pray that you land safely without breaking an ankle or a leg, or would you rather in that moment see a, a fireman come running down the hallway to wrap a coat around you and walk you through safely uh, through the flames uh, to outside of the home where you find the rest of your family? Which of those would you rather have? Uh, lastly, you're, you're driving your vehicle, okay, your man van for some of you that drive minivans or your little Ford Focus or whatever the case may be. You're driving your car. I mean, just enjoying the drive, not thinking about anything. Of course, you have Joy FM on, like no one's judging you. Like, of course, you're rocking out to Tomlin, of course. Um, you just switched off Z1077, right? Um, and, um, and all of a sudden, you hit, you hit some black ice. And 
in the car without even thinking about it, your, your instant reaction is to press on, to press on the brakes. And so you're, you're immediately thrust into this spin. And before you can even think, you're so disoriented because you realize now that the car has been flipped upside down. And you're now rolling. Your heart, again, you can feel coming out of your chest. Adrenaline has taken over. The car lands. The airbags have all popped out. And you look just outside of your window, and you can see a stream of gasoline that's coming by your face through the broken window. And so there's, there's this tremendous urgency that, like you know, man, if, if a fire were to touch this, it's, it's all over. Would you rather, in that moment, crawl through all the airbags, pop the seatbelt off, kick open the door, or in that moment, would you rather see a passenger that had come from a car behind you reach in and with all of his or her might pull you out and run you far enough away from the car that it wasn't an issue. Now, I believe that most of us, to all three of those situations, would say, look, I just don't want to drown. So whatever it takes, like, I don't care if the wave subsides or if all of a sudden someone rescues me, like, I just don't want to drown. I think you would say, look, I, just, I don't want to burn. I don't want to die in a fire. So if it takes a fireman or if it takes me jumping out of the window, whatever. I think you'd say, look, I don't want to die in an explosion from a wrecked car. That's not how I plan to go out. So, so actually, it just doesn't matter. One or the other, I just want to be safe. But what if you had to pick one, just one? What if you had to pick? Would you pick safety on your own accord or would you pick saving from someone else? If you could script it all out, if you had the pen, if you could design your story, I want to ask you this question. My first slide. Do you want a Savior? Now, what this question is going to do tonight is in a way that as I process my own heart, this question has absolutely opened me up. And I want to go ahead and tell you why. I think I've come to this place where I realize consistently that I need a Savior. So again, whether you're drowning or burning or, or uh, the, the flames are coming down the hallway or you're in a wreck. In my case, like I recognize I'm a punk. I, I, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I was born completely distant from God. So I know that I need a Savior. I've come to that realization. But the hard question I've had to ask myself is, okay, I need a Savior. Because, I, look, I don't want to spend an eternity in hell. I, I, I want the body of Christ and relationships. I, I long for the Spirit to be in my heart and, and guide my life. But do I want one? Or deep within me, am I still working towards his approval? Am I still longing that somehow I can contribute something that would replace the want for a Savior and put me in the driver's seat of that saving grace? And tonight, church, I'm not talking about what you would say out of your mouth. 
I'm talking about at your core, what do you believe? You may say that you need a Savior tonight. Straight from Philippians 3, I want to ask you, do you want one? And as we journey through this, I'm just, I'm praying that in me and you, that we can all be vulnerable, that the text will guide us tonight. And I'm telling you what, I'm serious. The fruit that can be born from God doing a massive work in this room tonight, I believe, is to a place in our hearts that some of us have never experienced before. Because we've always thought, well, if I need him, that's good, but I don't. I don't need to want him. I think that will change in us. So open your Bibles, turning your phones, your tablets, or whatever device you have, and turn to Philippians uh, chapter 3 if you can. Now we're halfway home. Halfway home. Week 10 is the full journey of Philippians. Tonight we're in week 6. We just got done with a long section in Philippians, the longest section last week that we'll study. And tonight we're going to continue our journey in Philippians, starting with chapter 3, going from verse 1 to 11. Do you want a Savior? Verse 3, chapter 1. Finally. <laughs> um, let's, just, let's stop here. Um, now this is like, this can be construed as classic pastor language. Here's what I mean. Paul is certainly a pastor at art. He's a shepherd. He's a church planter. He used the word finally, but if you've done the math, there are two more chapters to go, chapter 3, chapter 4, 44 more verses. So some would argue like it's, it's like a classic pastor. He says finally, but it really doesn't mean that at all, right? Like there's a whole lot more to come, so it's really not finally. But others would say, look, look he's got a long litany of things to now sum up all that he said in Philippians. So the word finally simply acts as a transition. Either way, he's far from being over. And in this section in particular, his language gets harsh. There are words that Paul uses in this section that are the closest to Greek cuss words that you can get. Okay? So some of you are already intrigued. Oh, is Mark going to cuss tonight? Maybe. Here we go. Okay. Finally, my brothers, again, this letter is written to believers. He says, rejoice in the Lord. This has been his mantra all throughout Philippians. But I want you to pay close attention to where the rejoicing happens. Listen, there is this tendency, even in our, what we perceive to be joy, to rejoice in the circumstance but I believe as God unfolds in his grace and love our life, it's never an opportunity to rejoice in the circumstance, the situation, the things that surround it. It is always an opportunity in every circumstance to rejoice in the Lord. The Lord as the source of all love, of all hope, of all grace, of all mercy. And so he reminds his readers again, look, we're not talking about here rejoicing in thought. We're talking about rejoicing in the Lord. And because he's the Lord, there's reason to rejoice. He says, and I love this, to write the same things to you is no trouble uh, to me and is safe for you. Uh, here's what he means. I'm going to keep talking about Christ's centrality, and it's not a problem. It's not tedious work. You guys see what he's saying? He's like, I'm going to keep coming back to Christ-centric teaching. So if you thought we were going to get uber practical, says Paul to the church in Philippi, if you thought I was going to like pull your heartstrings with some cultural niceties, if you thought I was going to do something different than what I've done in all my writing, uh, actually no. It's of no trouble to me 
to stay the course. Jesus. Like, I have no reason to deviate from that. So he's like, it's of no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. He says in verse 2, this is heavy, look out for the dogs. How many of you guys have a dog here? Okay. Come on, raise your hand loud and proud. All right. You guys know my stance? My hand will never be raised. If my kids were in this room, their hands would never be raised, all right? And you're like, but Mark, how can you deny your little daughter? And trust me, she asked on every birthday, Daddy, can we please have a dog? And I look at those little puppy dog eyes, and I'm like, no way, honey. And I give her love, and I try to extend my grace to her, but I'm like, look, who's going to, you know, anyway, we don't have to go there. I I want you to understand, this isn't like a, a verse where Paul is all of a sudden addressing a, a dog population issue. Okay. So he hasn't gotten word from the pet control people that there's a massive, you know, outlandish group of dogs that are wandering the streets uh, in Philippi. That's not the case. Jews, listen, Jews often called Gentiles, anybody? Dogs. So a Jew, again, like in the premise of their own um, seniority, as it were, They would often call a Gentile, a non-Jew, sometimes behind closed doors, but sometimes in public, a dog. So Paul, in a really interesting use of language, he says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, what is he talking about? Was cutting a cultural issue at the time? I'm not sure. But all three of these uh, cultural issues are pointed right at the Judaizers, right at the Jews who are part of, remember, this false teaching that is making entrance into Philippi, and their message is you need to become a Jew first, and then you, be, you, then you, then you can become a Christian. So what they're specifically saying is, watch out, look out for the mutilators of the flesh. He's saying, like, look out for those who who are going to say, get circumcised, and then become a Christian. Or you need to follow all of the Jewish rituals, and then you can come to Christ. He is saying, look out for legalism. Listen, um, if there's one thing in our Christian culture that has affected more of you than anything else in the church, it is legalism. I got an email today from a brother who's probably here now, brand new to the church. He's like, Mark, I, you sent me an email. He's like, I, I just, I have some questions for you. And he listed off like the six different denominations that, that he's been a part of. And again, none, none of those are inherently sinful or wrong, but he lists them out. And, and he says, all right, Mark, so I've been taught all my life, like the, the premise of works-based righteousness on the premise of legalism was his point. And he says, I just want to know where Matthias stands on that issue. And so my reply was, call me. Here's my cell. Okay. So he called me half an hour later, and I picked up the phone, and he said, brother, tell me what you believe. And I just said very plainly and simply, we are saved by grace through faith. So we don't work our way to the Lord. We're not earning our, the approval of the Lord. Our faith without works is dead, but... It's because it's the evidence of the spirit that is now bearing fruit in our life. And so I said, we're freed. So the the folks that have been in churches before where people have said, you drank a a sip of alcohol, you must not be a Christian. 
Anyone in here been burned by that? I'm not asking you to raise your hand. Okay. The folks who maybe grew up in the system where, where it seemed like if you didn't fit, listen, within the, the subculture of the church community that you were ostracized. Anyone ever experienced that? Uh, some of you were told things that you could never find in the Bible and you looked. That had become like sub-rules where like we could only wear this or we could only say this this way or we could only uh, you know, perform this in this particular fashion and you scoured the scriptures and you even went to the leaders and you're like, where is this in the Bible? And they're like, listen, for us, it doesn't have to be a scriptural thing. The spirit is what's leading us to do that. And I say, no, 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 this is where all truth begins. This is the truth. The Spirit guides us, we connect with the Scripture, and what you're going to find in the message of Paul, the life of Jesus, and now the consistency of churches who embrace the gospel is legalism is done. It's over with. We no longer are bound by the law. The law was necessary to set up Christ's fulfillment of it. Do you guys see what I'm saying? What the scripture says is that Jesus came to fulfill. He came and fulfilled the law and the prophets. He lived them perfectly because every Israelite proved they couldn't do it. And you continue to prove that we can't do it. He fulfills the law and the prophets. And so the law plays its place in the terms of the gospel. And now you and I are freed. Not to jump on the other side into loose liberty. Not to become drunkards. Not to run away from the word and say, well, all these things now are the opposite of legalism. No. If you find your camp in legalism or if you find your camp in loose liberty, both are, both are errant. The balance is spirit-led, God-directed freedom. And that's what Paul's saying. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the flesh mutilators. Look out for those who are going to come in and they're going to say, you need to add this to the gospel. Anything that adds to the gospel is taking human creativity and adding to a creator's story that is perfect in and of itself. Listen, church, redemption needs no bullet points. It needs no human creativity. In and of itself, the story of redemption and what God has done through his son is an unbelievable story, and it needs no additions. You guys believe that with me? Like, that's the truth. Now, what Paul recognizes is, listen, it's going to get easy. I've been distant from you. Remember last week he said, listen, don't just obey when I'm here. Obey obey when I'm not here. It's going to be easy for this church to hear these things. And get worried. What's the worry? The worry is, what if that teaching is true? What if I'm not a Christian unless I'm circumcised? What if I'm not a Christian unless I enjoy this festival? What if I'm not a Christian if I don't follow these man-made rules? Listen, can I just, can I grab all of your hearts right now and hold them close? (laughs) By grace through faith. By grace through faith. Look out, my friends. As teachers here in this body, we will help you look out. And hopefully we will continue to be a message of grace here and mercy and love and not legalism or works or that you can earn his love. Okay? He's saying look out. Look out for the dogs. And then he says, seriously, an unbelievable statement, which at first sounds really weird. Okay? Look look what he says here in uh, verse 3. For we are the circumcision... Now, at first glance, this is strange, isn't it? Like, you don't often talk about this, right? Have you ever walked in a room and said, for I am the circumcision, you know? Like, 
Like this has, this, like no, you haven't done that. Okay, you don't have that bumper sticker, right? Um, you've never made that Facebook post, okay? Like it would create some really interesting conversation, right? So, so, so what is Paul saying, right? Now, when we talk through um, some previous books and teachings, uh, one of the issues is that our hearts now in Christ have been circumcised. In other words, the old has been cut away and the new has come. Scripture very specifically says that we're, the old has gone and the new has come. Like we're new in Christ, new creations in Jesus. And so when he says we are the circumcision, he's reminding them, listen, that no one can take your identity away. Uh, the, the guy that raped you, the husband that abandoned you, that leader that betrayed you, the employer that left you for nothing, the children that turned their back on you, and on and on and on, every single one of those things have tried to take away your identity in Christ. Now you're nothing. You're worthless. You're hated. You're condemned. So Seriously, so much of the premise of the enemy's attack, so much of the premise of an unbelieving world out of just not knowing is coming at the identity of the Christian. Trying to take away what you possess in Christ. And Paul boldly comes at it from a weird angle and he says, look out for the dogs. They're going to bring bad teaching. They're going to draw you to legalism away from grace. He says, we are the circumcision. Nobody can take that identity away. He has tore away the old and he has given us the new. And so I just want to encourage your heart again, like if I could grab every single one of your hearts and just bring you close and we could hug it out right now, I would say, listen, in Christ, no one, no one, no one can take that identity away. As harsh as it, as it seems, as horrific as the times get, as much as the lies seem pertinent, there is no one that can take your identity in Christ that has been given you from the creator of the world and say that you're less than that. We say it all the time here, I'll say it once more. Once you're adopted by the king, he does not orphan you. He says, for we are the circumcision, look at this, who worship by the spirit of God. We don't worship by emotion, even though emotion is a piece of worship. We don't, we don't worship by, by culture or DNA. We don't worship because this is what Christians are supposed to look like. We worship by the spirit. In other words, when we gather here and the days don't seem that bright and you've come in here from a long day of work and all the facets of our life and you don't feel like worshiping, the great thing, believer, is the Spirit is in you. And you know what the Spirit is doing? It's confirming truth. It's guiding you to the Lord Jesus. We worship by the Spirit and glory, it says in middle verse 3, in Christ Jesus. And look at this. And put no confidence in the flesh. All right, all right. Now he takes a turn. We're the circumcision. We worship in the spirit for the glory of Christ. And we put no confidence in the flesh. What he's saying is, we put no confidence in who we once were. We put no confidence in the old man. We put no confidence in our ability 
to legalistically make our way to God. That's what he's saying. We put no confidence in it. I can't get there. I've tried. I can't get there. I've pursued. I've sought after God's approval apart from Christ, and it has not worked. Now some interesting language from Paul. Look at this. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. <laughs> now, some read this as very pompous. Is Paul saying that he's awesome? Well, kind of, but just give me a second, okay? I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, here's what he says, I have more. Again, it sounds weird at first, hang with me. What he's saying is, if these teachers come down to Philippi and they start saying, this is who we are, this is what we've done, and now you need to become like us to receive God's love, what Paul is saying is, don't you think I would have taught that? If that's truth, don't you think I would have communicated that? Because of all people who should have confidence in the flesh, I have more than those teachers. That's what he's saying. And again, it seems pompous, but hold on. Here's what he says, verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day. Again, it seems weird that that would be like a props, okay? But Leviticus says that when you're circumcised on the eighth day, like this is the pattern for Jewish boys. So he's like, first, I was born and I was circumcised on the right day to be circumcised, Okay? Hospitals don't wait till the eighth day. Now, that's a whole other topic. Here we go. He says, I'm of the people of Israel. So I was not just circumcised on the eighth day. I, I'm a part of the people of Israel. He's saying I'm a Jew. I'm not just a part of the people of Israel. He also says uh, that he's of the tribe of Benjamin. Okay? And you're like, well, but what, what does that have to do with it? Well, uh, in Israel, there are tribes in the... The Benjamin tribe, the Benjamite tribe, was a distinguished tribe. Uh, the first king of Israel comes from there, King Saul. Uh, in addition, uh, the tribe of Benjamin forms uh, not just the territory of Jerusalem once they get separated, but it joins forces and becomes part of the su southern kingdom. So the tribe of Benjamin is a distinguished tribe, and that's what Paul is making note of. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. That means my parents, Hebrew. I, you know, my parents didn't come from, from this piece and that piece. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee. Now, uh, I just, I want to confess this to you now. When I was a young preacher at Matthias many years ago, in a sermon talking about the Pharisees, I'm confessing, this is sin. Um, I called the Pharisees Pharisanks, okay? And I can say it now because I'm confessing it. Um, <laughs> I called them Ferriskanks, and my dear brother, a pastor who's been here with me since the beginning, Pastor Jeff, we only had one service then, but he came up to me after the service, and he leaned into me, and he gave me a big hug, and he said, and whispered in my ear, never say that again, you know? <laughs> and um, so, I, okay, you know, and Jeff has become kind of a, a joke and language efficient for me, which I'm very grateful for. But, but that's kind of the, like when I hear the word Pharisee, that's, that's what happens in my heart. Well, well Why? Uh, there were no more than about 6,000 Pharisees at a time. The Pharisees were known for their knowledge. They were, we could say, legalistic to the hilt. They uh, seemed to know the Lord. They seemed to obey God. 
They seem to follow the rules, but just so we're on the same page, the Pharisees are looking the Son of God in the face and saying, He's a blasphemer. So they said they wanted a Redeemer, and yet the Redeemer's looking at them in the eye, and they shoved him away. But Paul was a Pharisee. So in terms of a Jew, that at times was a position of prominence. He's like, I knew a lot. I understood a lot. Now he adds in verse 6, as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. I was so passionate about being a Jew that I oversaw the executions of early Jesus followers. That's what he means when he says church. So he's like, look, I wasn't just like a Pharisee by title. I wasn't just a Hebrew of Hebrews. I want you to understand something. I killed people in the name of Jesus. So if there's anyone that has confidence in the flesh to stand before God and say, look what I've done for you. I've done everything right. It's me. Then he adds this, and again, this seems super pompous, but a persecutor of the church, middle of verse 6, as to righteousness under the law. What's the B word there? Blameless. Now, I want to explain this. Was Paul saying that in a, a prior existence he was perfect? No. But there was a belief among Pharisees that within a certain percentage, it's a true story, within a certain percentage, if they followed the law, that they were upholding their side of what God had covenanted. And so in, in, in light of that, then they were considered by God to be blameless. So what Paul's saying is, I followed the law. I read the Old Testament, I read the Mosaic law, I understood what the law said, and I followed it. I was blameless. You guys ready for verse 7? But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul is saying is, I had no, hear this, I had no earthly reason to give it all up. I was respected. I had power. I had relationships. I was loved, it seemed. I had earned God's love, I thought. He's saying, I had no earthly reason to give it up. And listen, deep down in the depths of your heart, again, not what you would say, in your heart. That's where so many of you guys find yourselves tonight. In terms of the earth, it appears that you would have no reason to, to lose anything, to give up anything to see things as a loss. Now, both the word gain and the word loss here in verse 7 are accounting terms. So what Paul's saying very literally is, I got out my spreadsheet and I looked at all of the profit and I looked at all the things that seemingly make a whole lot of sense but I lost all of those things for the sake of Christ. Believing that these things I actually don't need at all. And not just don't need, 
but this way of living was getting me nowhere. So listen, it'd be easy right now to say, well, what about the wealth? It'd be easy right now to say, what about the things you're holding on so tightly that they become idols in your life? Those things would be easy. But I want to dig deeper. What about the heart? What about the things that have that the have and are making up the core of who you are. Could you say right now, in confidence, as you looked back at everything that makes up your life, and say, everything that seemed profitable on the earth, I've given it up. I've counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Now I want you to understand the context of what he says in that verse. Again, this is another one of those verses in Philippians that is taken out and then put in Christian literature separate from the rest of the text. But now do you understand what he's saying? The Judaizers are coming. They're going to bring a false gospel. They're going to tell you you need to add to the gospel to become right before God. Jew first, then Christian. Listen, of all people that would have preached that message, it would have been me, Paul's saying. But it's not me. I didn't preach that message. I came to you with a different kind of teaching. And not only do you need to embrace that, not only do you need to understand that you need a Savior, but what he's saying in this moment is in the face of legality, the question is, do you want it? Do you want to know who he is? Do you want to long for who he is? Do you want his character? So much so that he goes on to say, look at this, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss. The word because is huge. Because of the surpassing worth of, come on, say it with me. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Knowing Christ, he says, is the surpassing worth. He's not saying that I was all these things pre-Jesus and now after Jesus, guess who I am? I'm like one of the best apostles in the world. I planted like 16 churches. I'm in prison for the gospel. He could have said all of those things. He could have said I've been left for dead. He could have said, listen, I throw it down when I preach. He could have said, wait till you hear me pray. He could have said all of those things. He doesn't. He says, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And then what does he say? What's the word? Come on. What's the word before? My. Right. Beautiful, beautiful text of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Look at this. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as Greek cuss word. All right, let's do a little work here, and you can use your imagination, okay? The word rubbish in the Greek, trash doesn't cut it. Um, garbage, not even close. Manure, getting closer. Okay. Now, th- this, will, this will, again, this will, be, this will sound weird. I'm, I'm, it's just the Bible in the Old Testament. The scripture says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. And you know what that phrase means? It means filthy menstrual rags. That's what it means. Okay, look it up in the Hebrew. So our righteousness on our own accord is as filthy menstrual rags. It's not a great thought. But here what Paul says is, I've counted all these things as loss, and now I count them as manure, as garbage, as trash, as rubbish. A persecutor of the church 
having all the wealth in the world, having respect, somebody hear this, having power. I've counted as all, all is lost. Like, at the end, all of these things are trash, rubbish, a facade. Not real, listen, not real life. And then he says, in order that I may gain Christ. So what Paul's saying is, there is a clear, distinct line. He said, there was a point that I stood on this side of it. There was a season and time in my life where I believed that everything that the world had to give me was what I wanted. And what Paul's saying is, I took it. I profited from it. It seemed beneficial. But what he's saying is, I've crossed over. Now I'm in submission to the Lord. Now I need and want a Savior. I don't want to do this on my own. I don't want to work in my life to gain things. All that I count to gain, I now say it's lost for the sake of Christ. And verse 9 is so beautiful. He says, and be found in Him. He's saying be associated with Him, not ashamed of Him. He's saying that in, in all things that people would say of Paul, that brother loves Jesus. I want to be found in him, covered by him, shrouded by him, protected by him, loved by him. I don't want to do anything that's not in him. Abide in me and I'll abide in you. And on and on the rhetoric goes. And be found in him, look at this, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, he's saying, it's not just that I need a savior, it's that I want one. I don't want a righteousness that I have to work towards. If I'm in the, in the ocean, dying, what Paul's saying is, like, I want a rescuer. If I have the opportunity to climb out of the window myself or to wait on the fireman, he's saying like, I want to be saved. And church like that has to be the question for us tonight. Again, okay, we need him. Okay, we, like, we, we understand logically that if we don't have him that that means distance from him for an eternity and that means all the things that come with him on this earth. But I'm saying like, at the end of the day, are you still in your heart putting effort towards earning his love? That's wanting him. Those who need him have come to the place of knowing that you cannot do it without him. Those that want him don't want to do it without him. They're like, my life is yours. My righteousness, my good deeds only come from you. So here I am. Whatever it is, however it is you want to do it. And then he says my favorite words in this whole text. In verse 10. That I may know him. Mm. Here's what I picture Paul saying that I may know him and not be known. He's become one of the most known believers on the modern planet. 
And yet he's saying, of all the things in my life, the thing that I desire the most is to know him. I want to know his character. I want to know how he loves. I want to know how he pursues. You guys get this principle from the early stages of dating, maybe your spouse or someone you're dating now. Like there's that stage where, I mean, you're just every possible question, every possible angle of relationship. And for those of you that didn't do that, like you don't deserve to have the spouse that you have, okay? Like there, there was just like this season in Heidi and I's relationship where it was like, I just want to know everything about her. It's that kind of heart and passion and mentality. I, I just want to know you. Like that's what I want. That's what I long in other words, I, like the benefits that come with you, eternity with you, uh, a, a distance from my sin now, a, a living for you and, and relationships in the body of Christ, and on and on. All those things are awesome, but really what's driving my life is to know you, and then look at this, and the power of his resurrection. Oh my goodness! He's saying, I want to know him, and I want to know the power of walking out of the grave. I want to know the power of life where sin has been conquered. I want to know the power where like all the past and shame and regret is gone. That's what Paul is saying. I don't want one thing that this world has for me. What I want is to know him and the power of his resurrection. That's where I want to live. That's where I want to celebrate. Like That's what I want to be my prompting for life. And again, he's writing from a prison cell. He could have said so much else. Instead, he reminds these people, bad teaching is coming. Listen, desire to know him. Long to know the power of the resurrection. This power that took a savior and exalted him to the highest place. And as we studied a few weeks ago, that at that name, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. But I have to be honest with you, you're not ready for the end of verse 10. see it? What happens is the, um, there's a general mindset that hoorahs, sharing with him in the power of the resurrection, and then the verse ends. But Paul doesn't. He says, and that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Here's what Paul's saying, and, and, and as, best, as best as you can, I can't make this happen for any of you, but the best that you can, just like find yourself in the prison cell, find yourself in his heart, find yourself hearing the words of already here, to live, to live as Christ, to die as gain, find yourself remembering all those things, Here's what Paul's saying is, I don't, I'm not interested in what God does with my life to bring association between me and him, but I long for association with him. I long for relationship. And so because of that, I want to share in his sufferings. If he did it, I want to share in it. Not just the resurrection. So God, if, if it means that, that I need to die for knowing you, 
then that means I'm associated with you. If it means that I live for you every single day of my life, passionate about the gospel, bleeding out for the cause of Christ, then so be it. But in every way, in every facet that I could be found in you, and that through those things, I know that I will know you more. This is where we've stopped. This is where the prosperity gospel ends. They don't get to the end of this verse. And yet it's the heart of Paul. So I say prosperity gospel. What do you say to the apostles that died? Did they die in vain? And even more, what do you say to the Savior that hung on a cross? Did he die in vain? Or was his suffering for the glory of his Father? Is our suffering even here and now and ridicule or Christians who are dying across the world, are those deaths in vain? Is that suffering in vain? Or if it's for the glory of Christ, then I say, so be it. Whatever you need to do, whatever facet and form that you need to do it in, then I'm going to share in your sufferings, he says, becoming like you in death, and Paul will die. And can you imagine him on that day? Having said all these words, and in his heart believing that he didn't just need a Savior, but that he wanted a Savior. That he sits back in full security of knowing that in his death it was going to be met with what he says in verse 11. And by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That in Christ, though the flesh would die, I would have a new body and a new heaven and a new earth because of who the person of Christ is in me. So listen, um, I think for the believers in the room, there has been a long life in your faith of needing him. I think you've dealt with that reality. I think you've understood that reality. Yes, do you struggle with it at times? Yes. But I want to now push us to really wrestle inwardly not what you would say, what you believe, how you're living. Would you rather have a rescuer or would you rather find your own way to him? Because if you would rather have a rescuer, if that's what you want, then that means your entire life finds itself in submission to that rescuer. If you just need him, then at times he can become a convenient God. He's like a mantelpiece. When you need him, when times get weary, when someone gets sick, that's when you plead. That's when you pray. Listen, when you want him, it's whatever comes with him. Whatever trial, whatever sickness, whatever comes, whatever persecution, whatever potential death, God, do what you would with my life so that I may find connection, relationship, and intimacy with you as my king. Now, uh, practically, what does that mean? That means every single one of us, including myself, who, who've, who's had to wrestle with this big time, has to ask, is what I'm doing on this earth 
attempting to get me somewhere. Or my pursuits in my job, trying to promote myself. Is my chasing the dollar, trying to provide something that I can attain or hold on to? Is the degree that I'm searching after or in longing for going to get me somewhere in life? Or is the wealth for Jesus? Is the job in all facets for the glory of God? Is the suffering for the renown of Christ? God, whatever, whatever you want, whatever you would do. So what happens then when a bunch of people want him? Do you know what that looks like? Have you even, can you even conceptualize what that means? It means a body, a people that would loose everything else, every pursuit of legalism, every condemnation, every grab of the identity, and that together they would say, in Christ, in him, is all we need. So tonight we have an opportunity to celebrate, to remember, to enjoy by sharing in this ancient meal. On both sides of this room tonight are uh, loaves of bread. And tonight you have an opportunity to come up and take a piece of that loaf. What it is is a remembrance of what Jesus says when he breaks the bread and he says, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat. And as you take this piece of bread, there are cups all around these tables. And you have an opportunity to dip it in the cup. And he says, uh, this is the cup that represents the blood of the new covenant. So by taking this meal, what we're confessing tonight is, we don't just need you, Jesus. We want you. We want you in our life and over our life. We want to know you. We want to be found in you. So here we are, Christ. God, glorify yourself through our life by whatever means possible. If it would mean sharing and suffering, then so be it. If it would mean sharing and death in the way that you did, that God, so be it, whatever. This meal tonight is the meal for those who don't just need the Lord but want him. So God, I would ask that in every way possible tonight that you would purge all pride you would rid all legalism that in your grace tonight you would free us to celebrate the work that your son has done God would you put in our heart a longing to know you tonight would you put in our heart a desire to be found in you that's what we pray so help us celebrate church respond as the Lord leads tonight.